listening to the weekly podcast of Bethel Bible Church and Pastor Mark Kirkendall. We're so glad you've joined us today. And as always, you can find more information about the church at our website, BethelBible.com. You can find us on Facebook and even follow us on Twitter at Bethel Bible. Let's join Sunday service now. Ephesians chapter 3 is where we're going to pick up. Because remember, we're in the first half of this book. Chapters 1, 2, and 3 are Paul's kind of theological foundation. He wants to make sure that they have the right theology. They are thinking about God correctly. And then chapters 4 through 6, he's going to take all these theological truths and how do we now live that out. And so we're going to begin in chapter 3 this morning. But he's going to begin by opening up, and chapter 3 is really a prayer. But usually what happens, it happens to me all the time, you begin praying and then you have this thought. And then your mind kind of goes with that. And that's a little bit what Paul does. He begins this prayer in verse 1. And then he stops and he pauses and he wants to make sure that they understand something. And then next week we'll see the end of that prayer. And so speaking of that, have you ever heard of the Rosetta Stone? Well, most of us may think of the language learning software that you see on the TV or hear on the radio, but there actually is an actual Rosetta Stone. The thing about this is you can actually go and see it today if you were ever at the British Museum in London. But there's a man that many of you have heard of that's connected to the Rosetta Stone, and his name is Napoleon. Napoleon was the French conqueror set out to conquer the world. And when he makes his trek into Egypt, they find a place and they begin rebuilding a fort. And as his men were doing this, they uncovered a stone. And what most people don't understand about Napoleon, we understand him as the Frenchman that was this great conqueror. Uh, but what we often don't know about him is he was a great patron of the arts and science. Well, in July of 1798, when he began his occupancy of Egypt, a couple of years later, in uh, September 1801, he's forced out. But in those three years, these men were rebuilding this fort, and they came across this stone that had these strange markings on it. Well, in August of 1799, as they were repairing this in the town of Rosita, this stone and they weren't for sure what it was. Well, the stone, it's about three and a half feet tall. It's about two and a half feet wide, 11 inches thick. And they said this stone weighs almost 2,000 pounds. And on this stone were these strange writings, these markings that no one understood. Well, in 1822, a Frenchman cracked the code. What he discovered on this stone, it contains two Egyptian inscriptions and one ancient Greek one. Well, the thing about this stone, when he began to unlock this code, he found that he unlocked the Egyptian hieroglyphics. In fact, this stone, it held the key to understanding a 1,400-year-old mystery. Well, that's a little bit what Paul is going to do today. He wants to make known a mystery that has been held for thousands of years. And so this morning, here's what we're going to talk through, just kind of an outline for you. In verses 1 through 5, we're going to see this mystery being revealed to Paul. 
Then we're going to see this mystery as being revealed to the Gentiles. Then it's revealed to the angels. And finally, it is to be revealed through us. But this is what I hope you'll take away today. God's mystery is that the church would make his grace visible. So let's pick up and see this mystery revealed to Paul beginning in verse 1. He says, For this reason I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, on behalf of you Gentiles. But Paul is, first of all, a prisoner in Rome, but he sees himself as a prisoner of Christ. So think about how incredible that is. Think of just this past week of the things that we have gone through. We've seen snow like we've never seen before here and sleet and freezing rain and sub-zero temperatures of uh, setting a 90-year-old record, no electricity, frozen and broken pipes. We've learned to melt snow to flush toilets. We've um, uh, struggled with to keep our houses warm. I mean, I feel for guys like Fredo that were out in this day after day trying to help homes. We saw grocery stores uh, that were depleted. I mean, I think of our own Randy Cheatham who spent a crazy week trying to keep his store, uh, grocery store open. In fact, I heard this past week he had to get a hotel room to stay close enough that he could walk to work just to make sure he was there. And many of us stuck at home. So remember that Paul is in Rome chained to a guard, but he rises above all of his circumstances. So yes, Paul is a prisoner of Rome, but he sees himself more importantly as a prisoner of Christ. But think about what it took and what landed Paul here. In fact, when Paul writes this letter, he is under house arrest in Rome, according to Acts 28. But before that, Paul was standing for the Jewish faith. In fact, he says he was persecuting Christians with zeal. He was feared by all Christians and even the apostles. Well, then he meets Christ on the road to Damascus and his life changes forever. In fact, those same Jews that loved and supported him, they start accusing him of being a threat. Scripture says he was called a disturber of the peace and that he promoted not just a wrong religion, but an illegal one. Well, Paul's problems began in Jerusalem where he is falsely accused by the Jews of defiling the temple, their most holy of holy places. You know how he was defiling it? According to Acts 21, it was by bringing Gentiles into the intercourt. And when he does this, a riot breaks out. And what, in fact, what saves Paul's life is some Roman soldiers actually arrest him and his life is spared. So Paul is given a chance to kind of plead his case. But what he does, he simply retells his experience with Christ on the road to Damascus. But then he takes it a step further and he tells them of God's plan for him to take this news of Christ to the Gentiles. Well, when the Jews hear this, they are enraged. In fact, in Acts 22, verse 22, we read upon this word that Paul has just said. It says, they raised their voices and said, away with such a fellow from the earth, for he should not be allowed to live. In fact, the hate was so intense these Jewish leaders vowed not to eat or drink until Paul was dead. 
Well, then for the next several years, uh, Paul is kind of shuffled around in Rome in custody. And he finally ends up under house arrest in Rome. So Paul is a prisoner of Rome, but he rises above all of that and sees himself as a prisoner of Christ above all. So I think Paul, he sees his life differently than most. Well, how in the world could he do this? I think it's because Paul knows something. He believes something. Paul believes that nothing touches his life that first has it passed through the fingers of God. No matter what that might be, Paul believes that. So look at verse 2. He says, Assuming or believing that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you. So he sees this as a stewardship, somebody that's entrusted to dispense something to other people. It's not theirs. They're just the ones that are being used to hand it out to other people. Just like if you came uh, this week into White House needing water and there were people, this water wasn't for them. There were people there that were filling buckets of water and dispensing it and being stewards of that for other people. But notice what he sees himself as a stewardship of, of God's grace. That God gave Paul a grace that wasn't meant for him. It was meant for other people. So Paul's purpose in life, in fact, his reason for being born was to be God's grace to others. Paul then explains what this grace was in verses 3 through 5. He says, how the mystery was made known to me by revelation, as I have written briefly, when you read this, you can perceive or you can know my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. So this grace, he says, is the mystery of Christ. And when he uses this word mystery, he means this is something that is beyond just natural knowledge and human knowledge. It is something that God had to reveal. Paul then explains what this mystery was. Paul is going to unlock it for them. And you see this in the mystery is going to be revealed to the Gentiles in verse 6. He says, this mystery was that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. So when he uses the word Gentile, we need to understand this was anyone that was not a Jew. In fact, Jews saw only two groups. There were themselves and then everyone else. And it's really hard for us to understand the distance between Jews and Gentiles. In fact, we're told in the Bible that Jews considered Gentiles dogs. They did everything they could to separate themselves from Gentiles. But the mystery, this mystery is that the gospel was not only for the Jews. So for just a moment, try to imagine yourself as a first century Jew. Your whole life, you've looked and expected, you've heard about, anticipated this Messiah, expected him to come, raise up an army, and then rage a righteous war of the Lord, 
to finally drive out the Roman and the pagan persecutors, to restore the temple that you longed for. When the Messiah returned to the pagan Gentiles, they finally would then flood to the mountain of the Lord. They would learn your laws and they would submit to the Davidic covenant like you did. That God's chosen people, Israel, would be the example for the world to follow. The world would become like you. So then this traitor, Paul, he comes along. But he is preaching a different message. He's preaching a message not become like us, but he preaches a message of God's unconditional acceptance of Gentiles through that Messiah. I think when I think of it that way, it's a little bit easier to understand the anger that they had. Because Paul was saying that they do not have to become Jews of observing the laws and the customs, but simply put their lives in Christ's hands. But notice what Paul says about these Gentiles, these outsiders. He says three things are going to happen. They become fellow heirs. Meaning they will become like brothers and sisters. He says members of the same body. That they're equals. But that each one is necessary. And that you're going to need each other. And partakers of the promise. That what they thought was exclusive uh, to them. Because of their devotion to God's laws and customs. Was being made available to others. Simply by faith. That the Gentiles who are outside the covenant with no claims to God's promises. But now he says they're partakers through faith. This would have been hard to understand. It would have been hard for them to accept if we'd been Jews back then. Because now look at verse 7. He says, of this gospel I was made a minister According to the gift of God's grace, which was given to me by the working of his power. To me, though I'm the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. And what you've just read in these verses are really the effects of the gospel that are seen in and through Paul. In fact, Paul sees himself as a minister. This word would translate to something today like a waiter or a server. They're bringing something to other people that they want and especially that they need. And he's taking this message of the gospel and he wants to deliver it. He wants to serve it to them. What Paul comes to do is to realize this. That if you try to follow the law under your own powers, it only produces arrogance and pride. But the gospel, it produces humility. Because look at what Paul says about himself again. And he does this in almost every letter. He talks about he is the least of these. When you would compare him to the other apostles. When you look at sinners, he says, I'm the chief of all of them. But what we see is that the gospel creates not only a bond that can't be broken. Fellow heirs, brothers and sisters, same body, partakers of the promise. But it also creates a humility that cannot be matched. And what is true back then is still true today that the church is to be this group of people. 
where we have different personalities and likes and dislikes and opinions and backgrounds and experiences and heritage and skin colors that are a family, a body that we all share in the same promises in Christ. But this cannot happen and it will not happen without genuine humility. That only the gospel can create that type of people. In fact, the church is to be a picture of unity. Maybe like the world has never seen. And so God's mystery that he is unlocking is that the church would make his grace visible. That's what the church is supposed to be doing. But not only in this world. There's another audience that is watching even today the church at work. It's when this mystery is revealed to the angels. Look at verse 9 and 10. And to bring to light for everyone what the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God. That God is revealing something to all people. The one that created all things. So that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. So this mystery of the gospel and, and unity was once hidden. But when Christ came and gave his life to create the church, this mystery was finally revealed. And it was revealed in and through the church. It was to be seen all throughout the world. But did you notice? Also in the heavens. That Paul has just painted this picture of angels kind of bent over and intently observing the teachings and, and the actions of God's people. That the angels watched back then and they are continuing to watch us today as we are a part of that mystery being revealed. And notice what they're watching. It says the manifold wisdom of God. And this word manifold, it's, it's like a pattern of a variety of colors coming together that are seen in an original beauty. I think the closest of anything on earth I'd seen in this was going to Turkey. One of our stops we made was going into a, a rug factory. Nothing that we might have here. Every rug was made by hand. And there was these women that were sitting down on these small little stools with before them was this fabric of variety of colors being woven by hand together. One of these rugs I was watching being made uh, was about, I don't know, probably six by eight. And we asked her, how long will it take her to make this rug? And she said, anywhere from seven to eight years if I work hard. But when she gets done and this rug is displayed, the beauty is unreal of how she's taken these different fabrics of different colors and woven them together that makes them something beautiful. I think that's what Paul is talking about when he's describing the church. But I want to read for us something by uh, Kent Hughes. I read it this week and it just helped to put this in a word picture for me of what is happening in the church today and how the angels are looking and watching. It says the angels, they've seen the greatness and the wisdom of creation. They've watched God's people from beginning 
of Aaron and Moses and the blood-drenched offerings and the clouds of smoke in the tabernacle and the temple and on and on. They've seen the advent of Christ, the incarnation, the death, and the resurrection of their blessed Lord. Yet, there still remains much to learn. How will it conclude or finish, they wonder. And how do you know? And do you know what they now watch? They're watching the church. They're watching us. God reveals his manifold wisdom, literally many colored wisdom, like Joseph's coat of many colors. Through studying the church, the angelic host observes the reconciling work of Christ, which is the model for the reconciling of the universe when everything on heaven and on earth will be brought together in him. All of this demands a view of the church so high that it challenges belief. The church, a product of God's reconciling work, will in fact be an agent in the ultimate cosmic reconciliation. This mystery keeps angels watching. That God's mystery is the church, and that it would make his grace visible. Well, then Paul concludes by answering, why would God do all of this? Why would he go through all this? Because surely there's a much easier and simpler way to display his manifold wisdom. And it's seen in the mystery revealed through us. In verse 11 it says, This was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. And the reason God did this is because this has always been his plan. He always wanted to use the church to display his manifold wisdom. And finally, it is being revealed through Christ. And Paul mentions two important things we now have access to. He says we have boldness and access with confidence. I'm thinking, why in the world would Paul use those two words of of boldness and and confidence? Well, it's because who he's writing to, who he's taking the gospel to, and it's the Gentiles. So now for a moment, just assume that you are a first century Gentile. Maybe you watched those Jews. You saw the way they lived. You saw how they interacted with one another. Maybe you even got high up on the hill and you listened or, or you watched them worship. But instead of seeing prejudices and arrogance and pride, you actually saw humility and love. And that is something that you wanted to be a part of. That you saw joy contentedness. You you saw love for others. But as a Gentile, you're always outside of that because of your heritage. Even if you wanted to worship with them, you'd be so timid because of your family tree and your past. But Paul says because of Christ, we can all come with boldness and confidence 
Not through the law, but simply through faith in Christ. This has always been God's plan, that God's mystery is that the church would make God's wisdom, His grace, visible. And so Paul now says one thing, that I, one more thing that I want to use as kind of a point of application, because look at verse 13. He says, so I ask you not to lose heart over what I am suffering for you, which is your glory. I don't know anyone other than Jesus Christ that was able to rise above his circumstances other than Paul. I mean, Paul is a prisoner. And what does he say? He says, I am suffering for you. And he tells them that he doesn't want them to lose heart. It seems to me that they would be the ones encouraging Paul not to lose heart. But here he is in prison in Rome, chained to a guard. And he is encouraging them not to lose heart. And he says, all of this, I'm suffering for you, which is your glory. But I've been thinking all week, how in the world could Paul have such a radical view of his life? And I think it has to be that Paul came to believe that nothing touches his life that hasn't first passed through the fingers of God. And so this morning, I hope that we would walk away with a, a greater appreciation, a, a greater commitment to, a greater love for his church. It isn't perfect. It's messy at times. But this is the plan that God has chosen to display this mystery. His manifold wisdom to the world. It's through his church. And it's great to see in some ways even that happening this week of, of people opening up their homes to others. Of doing whatever they could to go and to help maybe unfreeze pipes or helping a vehicle that was stranded or whatever they could do. Offering food. That's a small glimpse of the church, no matter who they were, reaching out to help other people, displaying this mystery of God's manifold wisdom to other people. But we're not done yet. You and I are a part of God's manifold wisdom. You and I are to be a part of his church, that our lives are to be used to make his grace visible. And I'm not for sure what the next week or days or months holds. But I pray that we would begin to see our lives a lot more like Paul. Of knowing that no matter what happens in my life, it must first pass through the fingers of God. No matter what comes our way, it's an opportunity for us to be used in a way that we are displaying for the world God's manifold wisdom. Thanks again for listening to the podcast today. We hope that you were blessed and encouraged. And if you have any questions or comments, we want you to let us know. Simply send your thoughts to questions at Bethelbible.com. Thanks for spending time with us and be sure to join us next week on the Bethel Bible Podcast.